Hi friends, I am your host Jade and welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, the true crime podcast that dives into bizarre and fascinating cases. Together we talk about everything in the true crime world, whether you've heard of them or not. So buckle up and get ready to feed your curiosity with Criminal Curiosity. This week, we are going to be talking about the murder of Suzanne Marie Collins and how inconsistent evidence and refusal to test DNA makes you wonder if her killer was brought to justice. So let's get started. Suzanne Marie Collins was born on June 8, 1966. Her father, John Collins, was a U.S. attorney and ambassador. He was married to his wife, Trudy Collins, and together they adopted Suzanne along with her older brother. John Collins was stationed in Greece in 1972, so the Collins family moved there. They then resided in Springfield, Virginia, and Suzanne graduated from Robert E. Lee High School. She decides to pursue a military career after finishing high school and enlist in the Marine Corps in June 1984. On October 19, 1985, 19-year-old Susan was stationed at the Naval Air Station in Memphis, Tennessee. The installation now is known as the Naval Support Activity Mid-South, located in Millington, Tennessee, which is close to three hours from the state's capital, Nashville. Suzanne had hopes and dreams for her career in the military. She aimed to be the first female to fly fighter jets in the Marines. She begins her avionics program training to move closer to her goal. Avionics is the electronic system that is used in aircrafts. She receives a promotion to the rank of Lance Corporal in 1985. She completes her nine-month avionics training and is set to graduate on July 12, 1985. After graduation, she will go on to her next duty station, which she hopes will be in California, where her boyfriend and best friend will be stationed. She makes plans to celebrate graduating and spending time with her friends before they're all separated and go to different duty stations all around the country the night before their graduation on July 11th by going out to dinner. However, things change when she's given NCO responsibilities, which include making sure that all the buildings are closed and keeping track of who enters the building. She contacts her friend and apologizes for being unable to join them for dinner, but they'll catch up the following day for graduation. Every day after work, Suzanne would go for runs because she's an avid runner. Suzanne was dressed in red shorts, a red marine t-shirt, white bandana, tennis shoes, white running socks, and a blue sweat belt around her waist. Around 10 p.m., she left her room telling her friend that she was going for a run and she would return in about 30 minutes. Suzanne went for runs every day, so her friend knew roughly how long it would take for her to go for a run and return. Because running on the base is significantly safer than running off base, Suzanne made the decision to run on base. Around 11 o'clock, Private First Class Mark Shotwell and Private First Class Michael Howard are also going for a run. They do notice Suzanne, who is running in the opposite direction. They then notice a dark brown Ford station wagon going in the same direction as Suzanne. 
This vehicle stands out to them because of the loud muffler on the vehicle and the high beam lights that are turned on. And it only takes them a couple of seconds before they hear a female screaming. They immediately go in the direction of the screams, but the brown station wagon that was on the side of the road manages to escape. They immediately inform base security that a woman has been abducted. One of the security officers said earlier in the evening that he had also noticed the brown station wagon with Kentucky license plates, and the man had his arm around the woman in the front seat. A report of a potential kidnapping was made to the base, and the local police and the two Marines started looking for the vehicle. The military base chief of watch learns about the possible kidnapping at around 12.10 a.m. on July 12th, and he's out and about when he stops the same car. Sedley Alley is identified as the driver of the 1970 dark green station wagon when the car is pulled over. When they interrogate him, they discover that he's married to Lynn Alley. She is also brought in for questioning. Because Lynn is in the Navy, the couple and their daughter live together on the base. The security guard that I already mentioned claimed to have seen them earlier in the evening recognized the woman as Lynn Alley. The two Marines were also brought in for questioning, and they were able to match Sedley Alley's vehicle to the one they claimed to have seen a couple of hours ago and Sedley, Ali's vehicle, had a loud muffler as well. When Lynn and Sedley were questioned about the scream the Marines heard while running, the two responded that they were simply fighting. And since their stories corroborated, authorities decided to let the couple go. The two Marines were actually perplexed and demanded that they be questioned further because, According to what they heard, the woman's scream was not simply the result of an argument, but rather a warning that she was in danger. Police are aware that their stories doesn't add up, and that nothing makes sense, but they're unable to take any action because no one has been reported missing. Around 5 in the morning on the day of Suzanne's graduation, her roommate Corporal Kimberly Young discovers that Suzanne has not returned which is worrying her because Suzanne had previously informed her that she was just going for a run and she would be back in a little while. It wasn't like Suzanne returned to her room and just got up early. No, her bed wasn't made and her roommate realizes that she never came back. Her roommate informs the base police that she is missing. Now that the police had the victim's name and description, they could put two and two together and conclude that the screaming victim was probably this victim of a kidnapping. One hour later, at around 6 a.m., authorities discover a body underneath a tree at Edmund Orgel Park, a park located eight miles from the Navy base. Blood was all over the woman's face, and she had noticeable bruises on each shoulder blade and scratches running from her shoulders to her waist. I won't go into detail about a tree limb that was involved, but you can assume what it was used for. Her left eye was swollen shut and damaged. Her breasts showed bite marks. It was difficult to identify her because of how badly bruised her face was. A red Marine Corps shirt, a red pair of shorts, white socks, tennis shoes, and napkins from a restaurant were found next to the body. 
Dr. James Spencer Bell, the medical examiner, stated that the cause of death was multiple injuries caused by blunt force trauma to the head. She was struck over a hundred times. When word of the murder spread, the police decided to arrest Sedley Alley. They discovered the same napkins from the same restaurant that were located around Susan's body in his car, which was then confiscated by the authorities. They also discover a stolen air conditioner pump and blood inside and outside the vehicle. So, to police, it appears to be a very simple case. Sedley Alley was brought in for questioning again. He claims he had nothing to do with her murder and that he wants a lawyer. Then Sedley later changes his mind and claims he knows exactly what happened to Suzanne. According to Sedley, Lynn went to a Tupperware party with her friends, and he wasn't really having the best time ever because he was alone. He drank a bottle of wine and two six-pack beers before driving to the local liquor store for additional alcohol. He states he parked his car near the golf course off the base, got out, and saw a woman running. He added that Suzanne noticed him standing there and approached him, and they started a conversation. They then ran to his car together. He stated that they split ways, with Suzanne running towards the base, and that he got into his car and drove home. He claims that the route was too narrow and he couldn't see, so he accidentally hit Suzanne with his car, causing her to scream and tumble around on the ground. He lifted her up and put her in his car so that he could get her help. He goes on to state that Suzanne started yelling at him, calling him a drunken bastard. He then drove to Edmund Orgel Park, held her down, and stabbed her in the head with a screwdriver. He claims he wanted it to appear like a sexual assault, but he didn't sexually assault her. He grabbed her clothes and scattered them around her body, and then used the tree branch. Sedley Alley was born on August 16, 1955. He served in the military before being discharged due to his drug and alcohol usage. His first wife, Deborah Alley, died under suspicious circumstances in a bathtub when she was 20 years old, just as she filed for divorce. Sedley claimed that the night she died, she was out drinking with other men when she decided to take a bath and drowned in the bathtub. However, the autopsy revealed signs of strangulation and a french fry wedged down her throat. According to the medical examiner, she choked on her own vomit. Dr. Bell, the medical examiner in Suzanne's case, finds no screwdriver wounds or wounds associated with being hit by a car, so Sedley Alley is telling a lie. They analyzed the blood found on the inside and outside of Sedley's vehicle, and it was type O blood, which is the same blood type as both Sedley and Suzanne. Sedley Alley was then charged with first-degree murder. Sedley then claims he has no recollection of killing her. He knew that he left the house, that he was drinking, and that he doesn't remember talking to the police. There has never been a proper diagnosis in this case, but Sedley maintains that he has multiple personality. Why is it so hard for me to say? Claims that he has multiple personality disorders and that another personality killed Suzanne. Suzanne's memorial service was held on July 17, 1985, and she was buried the next day at Arlington National Cemetery with military honors. 
Sedley Alley is placed in the Tennessee Mental Health Center from April to July 1986, as physicians examine him to determine if he truly has multiple personality disorder. One doctor comes out and claims that Sedley has one or two distinct personalities. Another doctor comes forward and claims that Sedley made everything up. He claims that Sedley has a borderline personality. Why can I get the personality and disorder right? He claims that Sedley has a borderline personality disorder. Former doctors' opinions are used, and they all state that Sedley does not have multiple personalities. The trial begins in 1987, two years after Suzanne's murder. The defense claims that he has multiple personality disorders and was legally insane when he murdered Suzanne, so they're using the insanity defense. And the prosecutors claim that Sedley is lying about everything. After deliberating for six hours on March 18, 1987, Sedley Alley was convicted of first-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated rape. He was sentenced to death on May 17, 1987. His execution date was set for September 11, 1987, which was six months away. So that's pretty quick because, as we all know, death penalty cases take up to like 20 years. There was no DNA testing in 1985, and by 2001, Sedley Alley's defense wanted the crime scene evidence analyzed. Sedley Alley was sentenced to death only on the basis of a confession, with no physical evidence investigated. Tennessee passed the Post-Conviction DNA Act in 2001. Sedley Alley could request that the DNA be analyzed at any moment except during the trial. This means that convicted prisoners had the right to have their DNA examined. The new execution date for Sedley Alley was set for June 3, 2004. Sedley subsequently changes his confession, claiming that he was pressured into confessing. Because nothing Sedley told the police matched what actually happened. The only thing that matched was where her body was discovered, and when Sedley Alley told them that, it was already in the media. So, the public was aware of it. Because the male underwear was never tested, co-founder of the Innocence Project, Barry Sheck, the state effectively said no, and stated that the DNA would not be enough evidence. To them... There were two witnesses who saw the car and Sedley confessed, so the state were pretty satisfied with how this case went. One month before his execution, his team files a petition to have DNA testing done on 11 samples. The samples included vaginal, oral, and rectal swabs, as well as head hairs from an African-American individual discovered on the victim's sock, which did not match Sedley because he's a white man. They also found Caucasian body hair discovered on the victim's waistband, Caucasian pubic hair discovered on the victim's left shoe, hair was discovered on the stick that was in the victim, and blood and more hair samples were collected. Sedley Alley's team asked the state to have these DNA samples examined to see if they match, and if they match, okay, good. Wonderful, Sedley is the one responsible for Suzanne's murder, and if they didn't, there was an innocent man behind bars. And again, the state said no. Sedley's execution was postponed, and in 2006, the Tennessee Parole Board recommends Tennessee Governor Phil Bresden to order DNA testing, which he refuses. 
He instructs Sedley's team to file a petition with a Memphis court. They do it on May 19th, but with three different items that were not mentioned in the 2004 petition. Because of this petition, his execution was delayed by 15 days due to the men's underwear, the stick, and the skin cells discovered under her fingernails. But once again, the petition was denied. So he was scheduled to be executed once more. On June 27th, his team still filed appeals for a stay of execution, but the United States Supreme Court dismisses them. However, at 11 p.m., two hours before his scheduled execution, a federal judge granted a stay of execution. But at 1.18 a.m. on June 28th, two judges from the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit overturned the stay of execution. On June 28, 2006, Sedley Alley was executed by lethal injection at the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution in Nashville, Tennessee, and was declared dead at 2.12 a.m. Sedley Alley is the state's second execution since 1960. Five years after his death, his team is granted permission to examine his DNA, but he's already dead. On November 8, 2018, they learn about a man who is in the same aviation course as Suzanne, and he raped multiple women. He was stationed in California, but they don't know 100% if he was in California at the time of her death. Sedley's daughter, April, petitioned to the courts for the DNA test on April 30th, 2019, and was denied on November 18th, 2019. In 2021, the Innocence Project collaborated with a litigator to file an appeal with the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals on behalf of Sedley Alley's estate. According to the Innocence Project, there was insufficient evidence. The tire tracks discovered at the crime scene did not belong to Sedley's car, and the shoe prints recovered did not match his shoes. The description of the man given by eyewitnesses did not match Sedley's. Witnesses described the man as being between 5'6 to 5'8, with medium red hair and a light complexion. Sedley Alley stood at 6'4 and weighed 220 pounds, with medium red hair and a light complexion. One of Suzanne's classmates turned out to be a murderer, and the, the description that the eyewitnesses gave matched her boyfriend. However, on May 7, 2021, the courts refused the plea once more. Following Suzanne's death, her parents became members of the Fairfax County Support Group for individuals who have lost family members due to homicide. Her parents established the Suzanne Marie Collins Perpetual Scholarship, which was first awarded in 1996. My thoughts? I hope I'm not the only one who is perplexed by this case. Now, when it comes to the death penalty, everyone's opinions is different, but to sentence someone to death, there has to be 100% concrete evidence that this person murdered this person. Now, in this case, it's unclear if he's guilty or innocent. Sure, he confessed, but his confession does not fit the events. The medical examiner stated that there's no bruise indicating she was hit by a car after he said he hit her with his car. There were no wounds on her body that said that she was stabbed with a screwdriver, which Sedley said he stabbed her in the head with a screwdriver. 
The tire marks, the shoe prints, none of it matches. And the state declined to have the DNA analyzed multiple times. And to me, what that looks like is that the state simply wanted the case to be an open and shut, quick, easy case. They didn't actually want the truth. And because of that, it makes you wonder if he's guilty or innocent because the state is given he's definitely innocent. Who knows? And with that, today's story comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, every Thursday, there is a new episode at 7 a.m. You can keep up with me and the podcast at Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod. That is all that I have for you today. Please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time, bye everyone. Mm-hmm.